It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. There's never a bad time for equality, is there? Saying that it will come with the time, while it hasn't come, we've waited enough. EU Confidential brings you a special new mini-series on women. 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 Power. Power. And and the the EU EU election. The XX Factor features both politicians and candidates. Women are risk-takers. People forget that. Female leaders in the European Union. You can really feel the change. You're listening to The XX Factor. Hey everyone, I'm Christina Gonzalez. And my name is Edina Schaert. And we're the producers of The XX Factor. And this is more of a reflective episode for us because we're actually going to be talking about ourselves, the media. Yeah, in a podcast about women politicians leading up to the European election, we want to explore how women are portrayed in the media. We think it's important because so much of politics is about perception. And this is greatly shaped, in the end, by the media. So we dug in, and it turns out that media coverage is actually a really complex topic, especially here in Europe. So to help us and you, the listeners, understand the nuances of this, we talked to experts in political communication, journalists, politicians like Marietje Schrake, Dutch member of the European Parliament, who you'll hear later in this episode. But first, let's take you on a journey on how this episode came to be. It started when we read an eye-opening statistic from the Council of Europe, which found that women represent only about a quarter of persons heard, read about, or seen in the news in Europe. And this comes from a study that they did in 2017 on media coverage of national elections, with a special focus specifically on gender equality. Yeah, but those findings were only for newspapers, television, and radio, or as we call it, the traditional media. Yes. But what about online? So unfortunately, online, things aren't much better. Women make up just 26% of the people in internet news stories and media news tweets combined. But wait, it gets worse. If we narrow it down to news about politics, women only make up 19% of the people appearing in the news stories in Europe. Now, keep in mind that we've talked about throughout this series the fact that the European Parliament is made up of only 36% women. So that's already an underrepresentation in politics. And now when you consider it in the media, it's even worse. That's crazy. But is there any change visible? So we have to keep in mind a little bit that these figures come from 2017. But for the five years leading up to the publication of their findings, they found that basically the rate of progress towards gender parity in news had almost ground to a halt. I think there's one other thing, though, that we should consider here when we talk about news coverage, because it's not just covering women politicians, but it's also featuring women to talk about political issues. So to serve as experts, which is also an important factor in the news. 
This also came up in our first episode when we talked to Belgium MEP Maria Arena. She criticized the media for not turning to women as experts in their coverage, unless they were talking about women's issue, and that's actually what we were also doing in the first place ourselves. True. But to be fair, let's just take a listen quickly to what she has to say. There is a very strong machism in the media. And so we have not the word. We are not in the, in the different interviews. We are not. I think that they, they feel that we are not competent. We are competent to speak about women, but not to speak about budget, to speak about finance, to speak about trade. So perhaps we have to change this. She has a point. If we go back to this Council of Europe study, it looks into the occupations of the persons that appear in news stories. And it found that women make up 18% of those quoted who are serving in positions in government or as politicians, ministers, spokespersons. But then if you look at the percentages of people who are quoted in the categories such as homemaker or parent or no occupation given, that number rises to 67% for women. Whoa. Sometimes you get a general sense that this is the case, but it's just amazing to actually hear these figures. Totally. I was really surprised, quite honestly, when looking at the statistics. But now the question is, why does this happen? And why is it that women are covered differently in the news, especially when it comes to political news? To try and get some answers, we turn to an expert in political communication. Andrea Rumele is a professor at the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. I would say that the field of political communication is best described as who says what, to whom, through which channel, with what effect. Could you tell us something about what makes something newsworthy? And could you tell us also what makes news for men versus what makes news for women? In political communication, we have so-called newsworthiness factors. And these normally are prominent, sensational, something new. Another factor would be closeness. Geographically, the closer it is to yourself, the more newsworthy it is. Now, of course, there are differences when we talk about female politicians compared to male politicians. For female politicians, it is newsworthy what the female politician, for example, wears. It is newsworthy what kind of personal situation she is in, whether she's a mother, whether she's married or not. Those are all factors that are more reported about when you have a female politician compared to a male politician. Let's stop right there for a second, because the issue of what women wear in their personal lives is something that came up over and over again in our research and interviews. And the general consensus is basically that the media does focus more on things like appearance and personal lives for women as compared to men. But there are two other, I think, important things that we found when we were digging around here which came out of this study by the European Parliament, actually, which found that women politicians are represented more negatively than men in the media. And also just the general fact that women politicians are less visible compared to men. Oh, yeah. This also came up in our recent interview, right, with Irish MEP Myrit McGuinness, who is the first vice president of the European Parliament. I think that of course, people look at women differently than men. Women look at women differently. That You know, there is a thing about how you look, what you wear. Um, you can't resist that, but it shouldn't become the whole story because men don't have that. I often thought I'd love to wear a suit and a tie and flat shoes all the time and blend in. Maybe we should try that someday to see what impact it has in terms of visualisation of men and women. But also, I think women do have to stand into the photographs. I definitely think that there is a tendency for women to shy back 
I've never found that with men. When I was a journalist, it was you never had to ask a man to stand into a photograph. They were going to be in there anyway. Um, and we need to start doing the same. But that's a cultural thing and it takes time to change it. But Professor Rumele also points out that the degree to which the media focuses on things like appearance is different from country to country. If you take the UK and Germany, there are not only differences in the media landscape, they of course also have very different political systems. We in Germany don't have that much tabloid press than you have in the UK, for example. So it is less sensational. It is less focused on things like dress code, the color of her, meaning Merkel's, suits or necklaces and so on than it is in the UK. Having said that, however, I think with the UK, we have a very specific situation at the moment with Brexit. So I wouldn't take that as sort of the normal times, but would really take that as an outlier at the moment. But for example, if you look at Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, there was loads of comments on the way she was dressed, on her hairdo, and that really wouldn't be an issue and wasn't an issue in Merkel's campaigns. She wears a pantsuit every day For the last 20 years and that is all she's worn This may be how Hillary Clinton is seen by Rudy Giuliani. When I see her, I, I see her in an orange jumpsuit, I'm sorry. Sorry, Rudy, but most see her in a pantsuit. So many pantsuits over the years, so many pantsuit jokes. You said you can tell it's summer Today, Hillary Clinton hit the beach in a one-piece pantsuit. Uh. <laughs> Do you regret, Prime Minister, the constant, insatiable obsession with your shoes? And would you consider that it is sexist to always be asked about them? It is interesting that people focus on my shoes. I don't think they focus on Philip Hammond's or Boris Johnson's. The issue of appearance also came up when we talked to Politico's own Sofia Schiriorilli Borelli. And I'm Politico's Italy correspondent. It's important to stress that the female politicians that are popular in Italy at this point and that actually have progressed in their careers and have had important jobs tend to be quite good looking. So as opposed to the previous generation of politicians where I don't think looks and appearance and popularity was really an issue because it was more focused on content nowadays. And I think technology and social media has contributed to this trend. I think looks and the, the way you present yourself and how fashionable you are and how well you work on television are really part of your success as a politician. I think a good example is that a former top cabinet member of Matteo Renzi's center-left government, who is now an MP, Maria Elena Boschi, appeared on the cover of Maxime, the men's magazine, last summer. And she was all over the place, and, you know, there were videos of her during the shoot, and she looked like a model or a TV star rather than a politician. And she attracted a lot of criticism for having done that, but it also attracted lots of publicity, and it made her, again, more popular, more accessible to people. And considering she's young and she's good-looking, it was a way for her to sort of cater to her public. Sylvia kind of touches on an interesting point there about this generational shift in women politicians but also about the changing relationship between politicians and the media. Did this come up at all in any of your findings or discussions with experts? Yeah, it did. So Professor Rumele at the Hertie School brought up the changing dynamics between the media and politicians over time. In the 60s, 70s and 80s of the last century, we say that media and politics have a interdependent relationship. That means politics is dependent on the media because they want to 
transmit and transport the issues they stand for, they campaign on. But on the other hand, media is also dependent on politics because they need the access, they need the stories, they need the information. Scholars say that we are observing a time where media is more dominant, where politics is dependent on media, on how media reports about them, how media frames their messages. With social media now playing such a prominent role, politicians, parties, candidates have a direct access to voters. A term we have coined in political communication is the so-called prosumers. Everybody is a producer of news and a consumer of news at the same time. When we started pulling together this episode, we were focusing more on the traditional media, which, as you said at the beginning of the episode, is more considered television, radio, newspaper. But in all of our interviews, the influence of social media was undeniable. And in some ways, there's more positive news here, because some analysis suggests that women politicians tend to have more followers or more likes on their social media platforms than men. Aline, this is when you thought it would be good to talk to a politician, and particularly somebody who's active on social media and, in your opinion, well-represented in the traditional media. Yeah, true. So I wanted to talk with Marietje Schake, and she is a member of the European Parliament from the Netherlands, my country. She's a member of Democrat 66 and part of the European Liberals and an expert on trade and digital policies. I went to talk to her to get her perspective of a politician who's often in the media. And as you will hear right at the top of the interview, she mentions how she uses social media as a sort of bypass to the traditional media. Could you first give us a sense of how you feel you're being portrayed in the media? Yeah, it's a good question because as members of European Parliament from the Netherlands, we don't get that many journalists that ask us about what we're doing here. I feel like many international media like Politico, Financial Times, Economist are focusing a lot more on European politics. So... I do believe that that's a challenge. And it basically means that there's under-portraying of what representatives are doing and therefore there's less opportunity for the general public to critically look at what they think about what we're doing. So we really resort to social media quite a bit. And I have my own website as well where I post longer stories that don't fit into a tweet or a Facebook post. And we're also interested, as you often appear in interviews and you're very active on social media, how you're trying to control your own narrative in the media. So could you maybe tell us something about your media strategy and if it's something you've set up beforehand or that it just developed organically? Yeah, I believe very much in authenticity, but I also believe in trying to reach people with as clear as possible an explanation of what we're doing. So some of the work, for example, on trade, when you get into the details, it's very technical. And if you start with those details, then people will simply zoom out, stop listening to the podcast. But when you try to build a bridge between the technical work and sometimes very detailed stuff that you're doing here in the European Parliament and the impact that you hope to have on people's lives. And so that's basically how I've done it, but not with huge strategies. I feel like it's organically growing narrative and frame and sometimes you think of a good example and then you repeat it because you notice that people you know engage when when it's tangible for them and do you do your own social media yep nobody has my passwords right could you give us did you see something weird oh no not at all but because you're active i was just wondering and that's also the next question how much time do you actually spend on talking to journalists or updating your social media 
You know, it's funny with social media because I also use it as a resource for reading and uh, understanding. Um, so if you add that and then I often share articles that I think are interesting or that signal something profound, probably between everything a couple of hours a day. I know that there are people who sit with their assistants to come up with a text for a tweet. Well, I never do that. I just type it myself and then move on when I'm on an elevator or, you know, waiting for an appointment to get through security. And I have a couple of minutes or, or seconds, then I just send something when I have time or when I read the morning news anyway, and I see something interesting, I share it. So it's a very organic process for me. You do sometimes get nasty comments on social media, particularly. Has it sometimes been difficult to deal with those? Yeah, I think it's a signal of our times where from behind an anonymous screen, it seems like there are people who have little barrier to really say very aggressive things like uh, sexually very insulting terms or wishing violence upon you, sometimes death upon you. I mean, that's that's something that I believe is a toxic element of social media. And I can imagine it even discourages people from participating in politics, which is a very bad um, development. So yeah, it, it does do something with me, but more as a general trend than personally, because I don't take it personally what these people are saying, but I do see it as a manifestation of anger and of vulgarity that I think we have to push back against. So sometimes I reply. I've written a blog once when I got a lot of uh, very aggressive replies and I just decided to send it back to everyone who reached out and some people apologized which I thought was surprising and good so I also do believe in continuing to discuss to the extent possible and also to reveal to others how this tone has changed so this got us thinking Perhaps it is impossible to do an episode about media coverage if we don't also look into social media. So again, we started to do some digging and we zoomed in on Italy. This is because when you compare European countries like Germany, France, Spain, Denmark, Italians turn out to have the highest percentage of daily social media use for news. Half of Italians turn to social media for their news each day. Half of them? Half of them. So compare this to Germany, for example, where just one quarter of people claim to use social media for their daily news fix. That's a big difference. It is, yeah. But other countries range somewhere in between the two. And by the way, this is according to a 2018 Pew Research Center survey. But they have to be getting their media from elsewhere as well, right? Well, so it isn't to say that Italians aren't consuming traditional news as well, but the media dynamics are rather complicated but also therefore interesting so let's pick back up with your conversation christina that you did with sylvia could you give us a bit of an overview of female representation in politics in italy this current government has 27 percent of female members which is less than the previous government which had 50 percent it's still a larger number than historic data because women haven't really had a large representation in Italian politics. So let's say the situation is improving, but clearly it's a lot worse than other EU countries. And what about at the European level? At the European level, I think it's been better than the national level, but it depends on the parties. So the center-left has some female MEPs that have been there for a very long time, and they've kept on being re-elected. The center-right has had more of a turnover, but I think the, the representation there is a bit better than the national level. And yourself, a journalist, 
of course, living in Italy. Can you give us a general impression of how women politicians are portrayed in Italian media? Yeah, so I think it depends a lot. Clearly, there's instances where being a woman is the thing you're attacked on in Italian media, because especially for some conservative newspapers and journalists, the rhetoric is pretty aggressive and politics is very polarized at this stage. And being a woman is one of those things that lends itself to attacks on a personal level. It's just very easy to attack a woman for being a woman, basically. So there have been cases that have been taken to court about female politicians attacked in the media. One very famous one was the Rome mayor, Virginia Raggi, who appeared on the front page of a conservative newspaper called Libero under a title in bold uh, saying hot potato and her picture right below it. And what they meant was that she had picked up a hot potato in having to solve all of Rome's problems, but actually it had a double meaning and everyone interpreted it as a comment on her looks because she's known for being quite attractive. So there is that kind of, you know, approach, which I think is allowed because in Italy the bar is very low on these things. It's a lot lower than elsewhere. So the media are allowed to use a form of irony and language that in other European countries wouldn't be allowed or wouldn't be politically correct. But also, I think, aside from the media, it's the sexism comes from male politicians, and then the media picks it up. But it's not necessarily the media triggering the sexism or this violent and aggressive approach to female politicians, but actually their male colleagues. So then in the media's efforts to essentially cover news, quote unquote, and what is said by politicians, that they therefore perpetuate these sexist stereotypes? I think at this point, especially after the Me Too movement, there's an attempt to actually highlight how politicians go about these topics in the wrong way. And so the media now is increasingly trying to defend women and take a politically correct stance. One of the most recent cases was a Five Stars MP, so an MP from one of the governing parties who went to court over an expenses scandal. And basically she blamed her ex-boyfriend and he had to face trial until obviously it turned out that he had nothing to do with the whole thing. And as a revenge, he sent every single media outlet in Italy uh, porn videos of her that he had on his phone. So there was a huge debate, and obviously some outlets were very tempted to publish these videos because, you know, it would have attracted lots of clicks and it would have been a great scoop. Let's call it a great scoop, whatever that means. But luckily, Rolling Stone came out first saying, we got the pictures and we aren't publishing them because we have to respect women and that's not the media's job. We should go out and report stories. We should report on her job or, you know, if she stole public money, but this has nothing to do with her work. And after Rolling Stone, a bunch of other media outlets were on the same page and they said and they tweeted and they wrote articles on how, you know, there should be legislation and the Italian parliament should pass legislation to protect women, not just politicians, but just women in Italian society that are victims of cases of so-called revenge porn. So I think it's evolving very much. In Italy, you have very much this intersection between the political parties or the political class and media in ways that maybe in other European countries aren't quite as direct. Can you speak a bit as to how this intertwined relationship might impact the coverage of politics and also perhaps specifically the coverage of women politicians? I think there's two levels of this, and one is that 
unfortunately, the media is very biased and politicized one way or the other in Italy. And there are some outlets, especially public television, that are politicized depending on who's in government. So clearly, at this point, with the far-right league and the populist five stars in government, we see a lot more of them on television. And the topics they focus on, like immigration and the European Union, the European elections, the, the harm that being part of the Eurozone has done to Italian economy, is something that gets a lot of airtime. And they rarely get someone to sort of contradict their statements or to argue the other part of the story. Or if they do, it's always someone who's less popular or less famous or that has less traction. So this is one thing. And the other thing is that Italian politicians use social media a lot. And this, in regard to women, is something that has turned some into... I don't know what the right word for this is, but some of them are, you know, very fashionable, very elegant, good looking. And so the minute they start posting on Instagram and get lots of followers, they just become sort of icons. And this, I think, is, you know, positive and negative in another sense, because in a way, their image and what they portray through social media is what people tend to focus on over their work. And the more you're on social media, the more you get invited on TV shows, the more following you have, the more the media wants to interview you and you get a platform. Since 2012, Italian media are required by law to provide balanced representation of men and women in their election campaign coverage and also their political programming. Has this made a difference at all? And also, can you tell us a bit about the reaction of your Italian media colleagues? So it has made a difference, but also it's been hard because there aren't as many women running for office. And so it can be hard for journalists to provide equal representation if there aren't enough women running because they're just not there. At the same time, however, I think there's a lot more attention now, both by political parties and by the media, to actually make sure there is enough female representation. So I think political parties really try harder to find women that want to run and that can do the job and that have a chance of being elected. And media try harder to actually give women a platform. So I think it is improving. I also think it's just harder for women in Italy to juggle their career and their personal lives because the state doesn't really help you or support you in that sense. And historically, it's been a lot harder. There's been a big divide between men and women. Uh, a few months ago, an MEP, Lara Comi, from Berlusconi's center, right, Forza Italia, was attacked by a league undersecretary, so basically another center-right politician, these people are in regional governments together, saying that she should go back to the kitchen when she pressed him on issues regarding the controversial Italian national budget last year. So this is a perfect example of how men, in many cases, just don't think women should do anything else or more than just being mothers and housewives. But I think it is improving. So on the positive note, Italy is starting out with a very low bar, but it's getting higher. And I want to be positive and say that the situation is improving. Do laws demanding equal time during election coverage help to shift the balance? Studies show that basically it doesn't. Hmm. Mm-hmm. The gap that we told you about at the beginning of the episode, where women are represented just one quarter of the time in European news and even less when it comes to politics, this gap appears to be the same, even in campaigning season. But beyond legal demands, 
There are also journalist code of ethics. And what does that mean? So each country and even region sometimes may have slightly different codes of ethics, which are generally agreed upon within media markets. So for example, we asked Marietje Schaka whether there is a general understanding among journalists in the Netherlands when it comes to avoiding coverage of politicians' personal lives. Unless, of course, it has something to do with their politics. I think it was like that for a long time in the Netherlands. And I think it is a good thing because people's private life, as long as it doesn't impact their politics, should be none of the media's business. And I've also tried to keep it that way. And I've had discussions with spokespeople and campaign managers in the past who believed that I should share more of my personal life. But I also think that there's something good about not allowing everything to be instrumentalized for politics. You know, with social media and having a public role like this one, people know so much about you already. You're constantly on the record. You're constantly engaged. And it's it's been very uh, good for me to have a little bit of space with friends that are not on social media, with family that's not on social media, and the kinds of art that I love that I'm not sharing always or whatever. That's just been mine. I think that's a good thing. And I hope other people understand also why that kind of sanity and, and sometimes a little bit of an unplugging is good for every person. We also asked Professor Rummeler about German Chancellor Angela Merkel and the media's general respect of her private life. I would say Merkel never really made her being a female leader an issue. She never liked talking about her personal life. That was always something she really wanted to hide. And the media and the press respected that, by the way. With Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, she the difference between her and Merkel is that she has three kids, though they were raised by her husband. She sort of started to go into politics in the mid-1990s. And she openly and publicly shared the feelings she had about being a mum and being away from home. That's a new dimension. That's something we didn't discuss during the chancellorship of Angela Merkel, obviously because she never was in that situation, but also she never really made it an issue herself. Whereas AKK makes her personal experiences with being a mom of three kids a public issue. So, Christina, is the idea that if women simply appear more in political news, that all our problems will be solved here? Of course not. <laughs> of course That'd be way too simple an answer. There's definitely a difference, I would say, between just appearing in the news rather than being a credible voice in the news. And this is really important and maybe nerdy, but stick with me for a second, because it's going back to something that Professor Romolo was saying at the beginning of the episode about news values. And we have this thing in news called the hierarchy of credibility, right? So it basically means that The credibility of your sources in an article, when you choose them as a journalist, it matters. So let's say, for example, that you have an interview with Antonio Tajani, who is an Italian male politician, currently president of the European Parliament. And you as a journalist are then looking for another source to react to this interview. Generally, you would look for somebody who is roughly at about the same level of power as this person or has roughly the equal amount of expertise on the topics that he's talking about. For the sake of including women into the conversation, you wouldn't then just go out onto the streets of Brussels and look for women to interview to ask them about their opinions about what he has to say. This isn't what we're talking about here. That would be way oversimplifying things. 
But what you could do, for example, is then choose to talk to, let's say, Irish MEP Myred McGuinness, first vice president of the European Parliament, whom we spoke with in the last episode of The XX Factor. In other words, what we're talking about here is being a bit more mindful and aware of the women at roughly the equal levels of power. But that's the point, right? If women are not the heads of parties or political groups or in leadership position, the media may not view them as a credible enough source to respond to the men in power. Exactly. So what happens is that people in powerful positions, who will oftentimes be men, become the quote-unquote primary definers of news, which means that they essentially get to set the agenda of what we, the media, are talking about. So in some ways, you could say this isn't maybe the media's fault, but rather just the media being a reflection of the existing political structures, right? And this is a little bit what Sylvia was referring to earlier in our episode when it comes to the Italian media. But it's not just about politicians. It's also about women serving as experts on important issues. And what we see in the media and statistics show this, that journalists still tend to look more towards male subjects in terms of experts to serve in their stories as compared to women. And this is the same for both men and women reporters, by the way. To be honest, I would say as a reporter myself that sometimes when deadlines are approaching or when news is moving really quickly, you often rely on the same set of sources and it often may be men and it can be hard to expand your go-to people in that moment. But I agree that perhaps we need to do a better job at that. Yeah, I mean, I know it's tough, but I would say that if we could have a moment of reflection, it would be that as these elections happen and a new crop of politicians comes to Brussels, that all of us could do a better job of identifying not only men, but also the women who can speak to certain issues. Yeah, I agree. But of course, it still doesn't stop sexism within the media, whether it's intentional or not. And it also wouldn't stop the nasty rhetoric that's going on on social media. You're totally right. And I would say on the one hand, the good news is that blatant sexism is generally on the decline. Okay. But there is this emerging sort of subtle sexism that we have to watch out for. And, and I'll, what is that? Yeah, so I'll give you two quick examples. The first one is this bias of omission. And we were talking about this before, but what it means is that sometimes it's not necessarily about what you cover or how you say it, but it's actually about the things that you don't cover. And in this case, this is where female politicians, especially new female politicians coming onto the scene, can really struggle even to get their voices into the media at all. The other one is constantly referring to female politicians as being anomalies or outsiders in politics. But I will have to say this, and it's a big but, there is something to be said for actually being painted in the media as a novelty. Because in the end, if you had to choose being an anomaly in the media or not being covered at all, you would choose to be mentioned. Okay, so after all these negative statistics <laughs> and all the things we heard, Christina, how would you leave the episode on a more positive note? Well, in our last episode, we talked with Myrid McGuinness and we asked her this question about how women are portrayed in the media because... Before her time as a politician, she worked for many years as a journalist, and I hope that her message here can end on a bit more of a positive note. I think the fact that we're still talking about this strikes me that change comes very, very slowly, and that we need to be aware of that. 
But we also need that women themselves, you know, face our fears and don't get put off by what you think they're thinking about you. And I think part of the women's issue is that I wonder what they'll think if I try this. My view is if they think badly of you, you know, that's the worst. But if you don't try it, then you will be really, you know, you're, you're not doing justice to yourself. So go for it, you know. But also know what you're talking about. I always think that's half crucial in all of this. I think women perhaps are also quite uh, hard on themselves about wanting to make sure we have all of the information. I know I'm a bit of a nerd about that. But I would like to normalise it rather than a conversation about gender balance. I'd just like to normalise that we need people in politics that happen to be men and women. That's all we have time for on this episode of The XX Factor. On our next episode, we will look at what Europe can learn from elsewhere in the world. Do we have anyone to thank? Of course. A special thanks to our editors Ryan Heath and Andrew Gray, as well as the guests in today's episode. I'm Edine Schaert. And I'm Christina Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.